In his first year of medical practice, after graduating from residency, Dr. Thomas Kinchelow explains how he grew in his love and knowledge of OMT over the years. He also explains why he chose to work for a private practice in Eugene, Oregon, rather than starting his own business or working for a hospital system. Hope you all enjoy the episode. Dr. Kinchelo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you for allowing me to come in and join. Yeah. So I always like to start out the podcast um, just asking, you know, a few questions about yourself, um, just where you're from, some hobbies outside of medicine, and then a book, documentary, or movie recommendation. So let's start there. All right. So... um birth so i was born in japan in a military family and so most of my life i traveled around pretty much between other countries and the southern united states and eventually ended up settling in washington state where i went to med school and uh from there kind of just traveled for more some more for uh residency and now I am practicing in Eugene, Oregon. Got it. So you're really a a son of the world. You've lived yes, all I, over the place. Yes, I, I quite am. <laughs> okay. Where would you consider home if you had to choose? Uh, if I had to choose anywhere, I would probably say Washington State, mostly because uh, it's where my wife grew up and lived uh, a good portion of her life. Uh, we have a good extensive amount of fam- of her family there, and uh, I grew to love the, the Pacific Northwest uh, with my military service there, as well as, you know, family and spending a lot of time there. Sure. So I'm from Idaho, and I absolutely agree that the Pacific Northwest is the best. Where in Washington State um, do you consider home? Uh, I would probably consider... Uh, Western Washington home, kind of the the luscious evergreen area. Uh, Her family lives more on Eastern Washington. So of course they're not going to like that answer, but uh, (laughs) that is just uh, our personality. We like the trees. We like the hills. We like the mountains. We like the waterfalls. And that's kind of just us. We like the outdoors and, and being close to nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So as far as hobbies go, I'm assuming that you're loving the outdoor adventure, the hiking, uh, the biking. Those I, I absolutely do. Uh, it's, it's wonderful here in Eugene. We have all the wonderful things that uh, wa- uh, Western Washington State had for us uh, in a very, very close proximity to us. Um, if I am forced to stay indoors, uh, the things that I also appreciate is I'm an avid martial artist. Uh, oh. I studied, uh, Bujinkan Taijutsu for about five years. In addition to that, um, I just like studying the arts in general, more traditional arts. If I am more confined than that, I am also a Dungeons and Dragons player and a Magic the Gathering player. Mm. When I have time, sure. I have two kids who occupy more of that time. So I am trying to sneak them into all my hobbies so that I can enjoy my hobbies. Yeah. How are you sneaking them into the 
Bujin Khan, martial arts. So I am a first degree black belt in that art. And so under the supervision of my sensei, I can teach uh, uh, students of my own. So as I can try my best to teach them, it's still a difficult process. Sure. And did this is a question that I've actually had for myself, because as you know, I am in residency in OMM residency program. And I was wondering, do you believe that martial arts or practicing the martial arts has helped you with your palpatory skills or being more body aware? I believe that it, it has for myself, uh, partly because I can with NMM or with OMM, you're able to identify lesions and the key lesions of the body. And so you're looking at those key areas to identify to then uh, treat them in a very static patient. When a patient comes into the clinic, they're going to sit down and there's going to be some movement here and there, but most of the time they're in a very static position so you can identify them and you can take time to identify them. In a martial arts aspect, you're now trying to utilize your own body mechanics to identify their key lesions in a much more dynamic, quick-paced setting so that you can deal more damage, per se, <laughs> in a martial arts aspect. Okay. So, so it has helped you identify the key lesion in the static patient that you're treating in the clinic? Yes. Okay, interesting. And do you feel that there is a particular martial art that is more prone to aiding a NMM resident or OMM resident with their palpatory skills or with keying in on that key lesion? Tai Chi, Kung Fu, Judo? I think so without having to insult any art themselves, I think anything that has a very close proximity where you're able to grab and feel and uh, so mo motions where you're able to have contact and to feel push and pull of the opponent. So things like Tai Chi, where you're trying to do push drills or, uh, uh, Kung Fu with push drills, uh, Aikido with a lot of their fluid key flow kind of stuff, Judo with their, uh, their receive and uh, throws, a lot of that subtle motion of what the body is, you, it will help. Mm -hmm. Would you have any opinion about Qigong? Because I have had a number of OMM doctors tell me, Ben, you should really practice Qigong. You yourself will be much more body aware. And as you're saying, you'll be able to key in better on those, those key critical lesions in your patients. So Qigong as an internal uh, breathing exercise, I think is great to allow yourself to have that central body awareness that you need as a practitioner for general wealth and uh, health and well-being itself uh, to utilize that with in uh, patient care aspect. It is very hard for me. Um, I have very limited experience with Qigong itself, so I can't really say much to that aspect. 
Got it. Okay. Fair enough. Well, you know, we started talking about OMM already. I'm really interested in hearing your story about how you became interested in this field of medicine. So to start, uh, let's start way back in high school. I was a young bassoon player who enjoyed, uh, who in high school, I uh, practiced and performed probably about three to four hours per day, six to seven days a week, so that I could be as well equipped to get a full ride scholarship to uh, a college. Uh, with that being said, I was not aware of proper body mechanics and, and how my body should be, and also proper instrumentation for the bassoon to allow me to have good mechanics. So what I did as a young kid was I picked up a, a saxophone neck strap and applied it to the bassoon and put all the weight of a bassoon on my neck. So as comparison, a saxophone is decently heavy, but they on purposely leave it to where you're able to play it while having the instrument seated in your lap. Mm -hmm. A bassoon is supposed is too tall. So it has to lay to your side. So my whole body, my whole neck was brunting the entire force of that bassoon. And how much does a bassoon weigh? Somewhere between 20 to 30 pounds. Oh, boy. And so three to four hours of 20 to 30 pounds on your neck, it gets taxing. And eventually, I just I started having neck pain. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know why I was having this neck pain. I was just, it hurt. It hurt a lot. And I couldn't figure out how to treat it. I tried the medications that we had, uh, the, the Tylenol ibuprofen that we had, and it was not cutting it. So I went to my primary care and they said, well, here's a few other things. Uh, let's also do physical therapy. I did physical therapy four or five times uh, over an eight-week period. Nothing. It still was there. Uh, they then sent me to or an orthopedic surgeon because that was the next step. And uh, they said, well, we can do, here's an experimental NSAID that they had at that time. And I didn't know what it was. And I don't think it's marketed anymore. But I took that for the course that they told me to take it for. And I came back and I was still the same. And, and, and when you say still the same, just incredible neck pain. Was it ridiculous going down your, your nope, hands? It was your hands and incredible neck pain right there uh, at the junction between C7 and T1. Okay. It's like a stabbing pain right there. Stabbing pain right there would not go away. No matter what I did, I tried to rub, I tried to massage and we've, and we've already talked about the whole medical course that we went through. So eventually I got to the option of, well, we can do a trigger point injection, which probably won't help you is what the surgeon said or we can do exploratory surgery which i'm okay with that and i said i am not going to do either and i went i went home i cried about it and then i went to my primary care told them look 
I've already gone through everything. These are the last two options that this surgeon told me I'm, I'm at wit's end. Can we do something else? And they said, well, there's this one thing that I used to do back in med school. Let me see. And they articulated my CT junction along with the first rib and it resolved and was pretty much good until I want to say 10 years later when I was in med school and hunched over a a desk. Yeah, that's incredible. So with one manipulation treatment, you were good for 10 years? Yes. And you continued playing the bassoon? And I continued playing the bassoon. Wow. So do you remember what the dysfunction was there at the CT junction? I remember where their hands were placed. And it wasn't until going to DO school and learning the hand positions and placement and how to do things that I finally realized what it was and what technique it was. And what was that? That was a first rib, uh, an inhaled first rib uh, HVLA technique. Hmm, interesting. So you got HVLA. That's that is phenomenal to me. That you know you suffered with this for, can we say years or is this months? It would probably have been about two years that I was complaining about it. Two years and one articulatory HVLA fixed that. I guess I would have thought, you know, being such a chronic problem that it would have taken four, five, six treatments with physical therapy. Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible. I thought it was incredible. I mean, that's, that's life-changing, mm-hmm. you know? Wow. That's super cool. So you had this treatment done. You're feeling great. You and get so, into medical school, and we're yep. skipping a ton of details, but you're in medical school. And I, yep, yeah, I was in medical school, and then I, of course, with medical school, being a DO in a DO school, you're sitting there, you're trying to balance, okay, I need to learn the physiology, the cardiac physiology, but I also need to learn, you know, HVLA of the ribs or things like that. And so eventually what I found is as the months progressed, I found myself studying more and more often in the OMM lab, but it was more of a combination of I'm, I'm working, I'm reading, I'm learning about cardiac physiology, as well as, you know, how to treat uh, uh, CHF. But then in between, I'd have a classmate come in and, and ask, hey, I need, I need some help. Can, can you look at this or can you look at that? And, you know, the teacher would be there and say, okay, go ahead. Just, you know, look at this. And so I would then look and try to treat certain areas of my fellow classmates. And it just got more and more comfortable and more and more uh, fun to see. I got more and more curious at what, what could I see? What couldn't I see? Yeah. So were you studying in the OMT lab because you wanted to treat your fellow students or was just a nice place to study? I think it was a combination of both. Okay. I think initially it was, it was a nice quiet place to study and then it eventually became a, oh, this is a ni- nice place to study. At the same time, it's also a nice place to get interaction with other people besides the computer. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I would have been so distracted treating people and interrupting my, I guess I would have thought that as interrupting my study, but 
that's cool that it was like a little study break for you and an opportunity to kind of hone your OMT skills. Mm -hmm. I find myself that I am more of a uh, kinesthetic learner. So having the ability to hands-on helped me a lot more with my learning. So when I did something, it helped me learn. So I would constantly, when, when fellow classmates would come in, I'd sit there and try to rethink about what I was also learning at the same time, trying to apply manual medicine on my fellow classmates. Sure. So at what point in medical school did you say, hey, I'm going to dedicate my career to OMT? So that's kind of an interesting slope. So initially I had, so I had hesitancy in dedicating my entire career to manual medicine and to OMM, partially because um, part, of, part of my heart and desire was I wanted to treat everything. I wanted to treat the person. So I was looking and gearing myself towards uh, family medicine practice with a heavy emphasis in manual medicine. Mm -hmm. So I knew from early on, probably within the first five months, I was going to do OMM as part of my practice. It wasn't until my intern year and seeing pain patients and doing OMM clinic in my intern year that I, I really was, yeah, I have to. I really have to do just OMM. I see. So you matched in, did you like do a transitional year? Yes, I did a transitional year in, okay. in Southampton, New York at Stony Brook University. Okay. Uh, and that traditional year was geared more towards uh, getting us ready and adequate for one of their fields. They had family medicine, internal medicine, and general surgery, and they were trying to push me towards general surgery. Mm -hmm. So what was it about the intern year that made you decide, hey, I need to do OMT full-time as my career? I think it was when, one... I had an opportunity to do an elective in the uh, OMM, the OMM clinic there, and just seeing the patients, being able to treat the patients with OMM, it just kind of rebrought back the feelings that I had about OMM. It kind of took you back to the the OMT lab at PNWU and med school and treating your fellow classmates. Exactly, and just seeing the relief that the patients had and just just the heartwarming feelings that I had in myself with that. And so was that enough for you just to let go of, you know, that desire to treat the whole person as a family medicine doctor and take care of their or manage their hypertension and their diabetes and their cholesterol? So, yes, it, it I want to say yes and no is what I should actually say. So, yes, it allowed me to say, okay, I don't need to treat all the aspects of that family medicine covers because I can treat the person in this way, the manual medicine way. But in addition to that, the other 
aspect of manual medicine that a lot of uh, a lot of us see but it's difficult to treat is also the mental health aspect of the patient as well and that was something that you wanted to incorporate into OMT yes okay and you felt did you feel that OMT was a more more geared towards addressing that point more so than family medicine I believe so. If you think about it, most family medicine, uh, family me- medicine providers, you get 15 to 20 minutes per patient, if that, that you're trying to manage way too many things, high blood pressure, diabetes, dyslipidemia. Oh, and by the way, they have toenail fungus and they also are having anxiety. And they want to travel to India and they need, (laughs) you know, clearance for their heart surgery. Yeah. Right. And you have 10. And my, and my child has a runny nose. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. With, with OMM, they're coming in most, most times with pain. That's their most common complaint that they're going to come in, whether it's neck pain, headaches, low back pain. But the other thing that we typically see with OMM is that there is some sort of trauma history that goes with that, whether it is uh, domestic violence, whether it is uh, childhood abuse, things like that, or things that would be conceived, would be conceived by a person as, as, you know, yourself as, Maybe that wasn't traumatic, but for them, it was very traumatic. Right. And so with that, we can talk about those things. And we have, uh, in, in my current clinic, I'm, I'm seeing patients 40 minutes. So my 40-minute appointments. Yeah. So that's really interesting that you bring up that psychosomatic component of medicine and of addressing pain as we do in OMT. I have talked to OMT docs and there, there seems to me to be kind of two different fields or camps. One, they say, you know, we are OMT doctors. We really focus on the biomechanics of the patient and how the vertebra are moving and how the fascia being distorted is also affecting the biomechanics, that interplay of fascia and biomechanics. And that's what we take care of. Psychosomatic know that's for the psychiatrist the other camp is says as you say you know there is that component of biomechanics and fascial distortions but oftentimes there is also that psychological traumatic event that is also driving the pain and they try somehow to address it and i'm still kind of reaching at how do they address it i haven't really been able to pull that out of them yet but yeah there does seem to be these two different beliefs about how an omt doctor should practice medicine so with my limited uh experience in um psychotherapy and psychotherapy concepts i can't do enough of what i would want to do but the idea would be to have not only the hands-on manual medicine aspect, but also to be able to incorporate some sort of psychotherapy uh, with it. 
Now, that being said, there are some psychotherapy um, modalities that they have that hands-on contact is actually contraindicated for the use of that modality because of the fear of transference. Now, patient sees that this manual medicine aspect and us talking about feelings maybe this person actually truly cares about my well-being and then all of a sudden there comes an amoration and so on and it compounds so there's a fine line on how to work it but there's other types of counseling and mental health modalities that could be incorporated with manual medicine so treating the body treating the body and also the mind at the same time doing complete whole body healing which is the basis of osteopathic uh philosophies is the healing of the whole body so so why why would you not just refer to psychiatry so interesting enough why why psychiatry why not psychiatry yeah well so it, it is a great question if I could, I would. And um, I know with you being in Michigan, you will learn that psychiatry is hard to come by. I remember sending, uh, attempting to send one patient uh, for suicidal ideations. Now, they were passive suicidal ideations, nothing active, no intent, no plan. So they're relatively safe. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I sent a referral to psychiatry mm-hmm. and the wait list was 2022 as a resident in 2020 and 2020. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's psychiatry. Uh, counseling was a little bit easier, but still, it was still tough to get in. And mm-hmm. then the next question is, will their insurance be covered for it? And it it's it's a big mess and mental health there's there's a very big component with pain and sure unfortunately the mental health uh field is uh struggling just like primary care is struggling so essentially we just don't have enough psychiatrists to address all of the trauma that people have linked to their pain that we who do not have a residency in psychiatry have to address as best as we can. That would be my best, uh, my best comparison. Okay. And so have you had some of, of course you have had some of these patients. How do you, what is your approach to psychosomatic pain? So my general approach to psychosomatic pain is one, Allow the patient to talk, especially when we hit areas that are, quote unquote, stressful. These are the areas that they carry their stress. Okay, please talk to me through what you're feeling when I, you know, treat this one area. What are you feeling when I treat this area? And if they need a breather for a moment, we, we, we sit there and we talk through while we're treating this little segment here or this little segment here. Um, but we're allowing them the opportunity to talk, to express their feelings, to, to, get them, to get them to free up some of their emotional aspect that's behind it. 
So you're actually treating the patient through manual therapy and allowing them to talk about their trauma as you're treating them? Yes. Do you or have you found in your experience that you're treating, you know, some area of the body where maybe they did actually experience some physical trauma and you as a OMT doctor feel a somatic dysfunction, you you realign or relieve these the somatic dysfunction and then they break down in tears or I don't know, or they open up about the trauma that they experienced there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, There's more cases than, than not that that has happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I, I read this past summer, the body keeps the score by Mm -hmm. Dr. Vander Kirk. And he specifically talks about how we all have some degree of trauma in our lives, whether that's physical, emotional, and and he he talks about how that actually manifests in the body. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, what you're saying. Finding a somatic dysfunction, encountering a patient who has gone through some trauma, and, you know, as a provider, thinking that, you know, potentially some of their pain is being driven by this um, this trauma. And through manual therapy, helping them on a emotional psychological level that's that's pretty fascinating Mm -hmm. super fascinating yeah it's very fascinating and it's a wonderful book as well no yeah it's that's a that's a book i'm gonna read every year (laughs) i feel like i'm always getting something else out of it there's so much to learn from that book and it's it's a wonderful resource it is very very dense but it is a great resource yeah I think the density is why I have to read it every year. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So you just graduated residency from Michigan State University, and you're currently in Eugene in a private practice. So I'd really like to talk to you about how, how you went job hunting and why you decided to go into private practice instead of starting your own practice or working for a hospital system. Well, so part of it was due to the, the COVID pandemic. The big thing was when COVID hit, we were, my wife and I sat down and talked about, well, let's figure out where we want to go. And she told me Pacific Northwest or bust. <laughs> I'd say the same thing. And so I, I was already on track to go, okay, well, I will, I will look around at the Pacific Northwest, but I know that there's a lot of other positions elsewhere. But when she said Pacific Northwest or bust, I was like, okay, well, let's figure something out. You better start really, really looking. So I started really, really looking, and I started really, really looking early. I actually contact, so I was looking on primarily Indeed and LinkedIn. And I only picked out places that had Pacific Northwest in them. And um, so the f- so the first place I contacted and they just were not ready for, well, they already had someone slotted for that time period, but they were encouraged that I was looking exactly two years out from employment. And so they said that they would consider me in two years. So you were looking for OMT positions on LinkedIn and Indeed.com. 
Yes. And how many did you find? I'm curious. Like 50? Um, yeah, you can find a good number of them. So most really? of them are academia. I think the last time I looked, there's a lot of positions. Uh, so there's a lot of positions, not only for um, American and U.S. physicians, NMM, for NMM. But there's also a bunch overseas in uh, Europe as well. Really? That's what I saw on LinkedIn. Uh, the last uh, look that I looked, and I check it probably once a month just to see what's out there, just for the fun of it, just to see who's looking, just so that I can help anyone else that's looking for a job. Yeah, that's fascinating. In Europe, you In didn't Europe. consider going to Europe, though. That was that was off the table. That was completely off the table. Yeah. Um. But so. On LinkedIn, on Indeed, most cases, you're going to find the academic positions or one of the academic recruiters. Uh, and they're looking for someone to fill in spots at one of the schools to help with instruction. And depending on the schools, some schools offer a clinic position or a research position. Okay. You know, and I, I, I can understand that with so many osteopathic medical schools, you know, being founded all around the country, they they need a chair to be OMM board certified, I believe. I'm not sure if that's changed. I know a few years ago that was the case, but um, regardless, they need faculty. I believe so. And I know that uh, during one of my last uh, meetings, uh, during one of my last meetings with the um, the NBOME faculty, we had a discussion about what, uh, why I did not apply and sit for an academic position. And mm. I told them that I found this position and I really, really enjoyed it. So, yeah, sure, sure. So you weren't looking for an academic position. You were looking for a private practice. I wanted to find a private practice because I went into medicine to treat people. So I wanted to find, you know, I wanted to be an actual, you know, to sit down, to see patients, to, to help patients. So um, I guess being in academia, you could do that part time. You could. I wanted to do it more than part time. And most of the academic positions that I was, that I, that I looked at, it was not part time. Got it. Okay. So how did, so this job that you landed in Eugene, is this the, the private practice that you had contacted two years earlier? No, it was not. It was so, I happened to be on LinkedIn and I found this one place and I applied to it. Now that's not the case with, uh, so by that time, this was the fifth place that I had contacted. So the other four places I had to do a lot more digging. Uh, some places that I contacted, I contacted, uh, one health system, uh, one hospital system that, um, was in the location that we wanted and mentioned and talked to their recruiter, their physician recruiter and mentioned that these are the aspects that I, I could supply for them. 
Mm-hmm. I also contacted a few other clinics in a very similar area and mentioned that these were the as you know this is what I do this is what uh, what aspect I could be utilized in and in those situations I I most of them were we don't have credentialing for that so we can't do that. What but, does that mean? They don't have credentialing. So some of them were federally qualified health centers and they have people that do OMM there, but they don't have someone who can do OMM a hundred percent of the time. And so it's more of a OMM is on the side. hmm, Is that their liability insurance wouldn't cover an, an OMT doc full time? I don't know exactly. I think it was more of a, they don't have the capacity for a physician to see patients 100% of the time with OMM. So with these recruiters, physician recruiters, did you present to them the monetary amount that you believed you could bring in? Uh, I did. Mm -hmm. And they still were unable. This was also early in the pandemic, too. Okay. So it was still unsure of what could be done and how long the pandemic was going to happen. Sure. That makes sense. Okay. So do you, I mean, do you think if you went back now and presented them, you know, your pitch, would it change? Because it possibly would change. Okay. Because now, I mean, we are still in the pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. We're kind of just living through it and trying to deal with it. But yeah, I feel like. We're not totally back to normal, but getting there slowly. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So those four clinics didn't work out. You have this clinic in Eugene, and what made them say yes? So one, I would be one. So OMM had already been established at this clinic. A lot of the other places, I it was going to be myself starting the entire OMM department. Got it. So one, I would have support that is already known about what OMM is in that area. Mm -hmm. So that would have helped me with not having to establish roots of this is the reason why you send a patient to me. This is not a reason why you send a patient to me. Right. Um, two, when I get a complicated case that I'm scratching my head at and maybe one of the other providers, it's something that they're more familiar with, uh, how to treat with manual medicine, I can trade. You take this one. I'll take that patient. Mm-hmm. So when you say was manual medicine was already established at this clinic, do you mean there were doctors, there were OMT physicians or ONMM board certified physicians who are practicing OMT full time. There was already one NMM boarded uh, physician at the time, or there was one, there was two full time OMM providers at the time. And I was supposed to be hired as one of the two additional that they hired. Oh, so they hired two, you and one other person. Yes. So wow. now currently there is four at my clinic. Okay. And how far are you guys booked out? Uh, I personally just starting in July am booked out until I want to say January. Wow. 
Like five months. Yes. When I arrived, I was booked out already into uh, September. And then once I got credentialing with all the insur- with most of the insurances, I think I'm still missing one or two insurances in the area. Um, but I'm booked all I'm booked out until pretty much January. That's incredible. And so you're taking insurance. This is not a cash based practice. It is not a cash based practice. It is insurance based. How many years has this OMT clinic been established? Uh I know the main provider who has done the OMM part of the practice has been at the clinic for six years. I don't know when she made the adventure that made the adventure of turning it into a department. I believe that was about a year later. Okay. So roughly five years. Uh-huh. And, and would you say that the community of Eugene has a decent understanding of what OMT is, maybe not amongst the general public, but the providers and physicians? Oh, the providers, at least at our clinic, and at least with the the, the orthopedic practices around here, definitely have a good understanding. And we have a very, very large uh, uh, patient base. And are you able to say the name of this clinic? Uh, For not to. I prefer not to, but you can okay. always contact me and I would be willing to arrange uh, possibly meeting up. Perfect. How, how do people contact you? You can contact me at my email address. That would be T-K-I-N-C-H-E-L-O-E at P-N-W-U dot E-D-U. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. Um, so... Did the the early early on when the clinic was being established, did the OMT docs go into the community and buy lunch for the orthopedic physicians and talk to them about what OMT is or how did they go about educating the providers in the area? I think it first started at so the practice that I'm with is a it is a large primary care based practice. So I think they started just internally within the practice. After that point, it just exploded with every, with all the other providers in the clinic. Um, and now that we share a, we share an office with rheumatology, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of patients that we trade back and forth. I see. Would you say that makes up the majority of your patient population? I would say between physiatry and uh, rheumatology, that would take a good portion of our practice. I see. So why, I mean, I think it's fair to say that if you're booked out until January and this is your first year of practice, this Mm -hmm. is a thriving OMM clinic. Yes. Why do other hospital systems or clinics not have an OMT department? That's a good question to me. I think part of it is just a lack of understanding of what we do and a lack of understanding of how to implement us in practice. Okay. And I think a common misunderstanding is that hey, you OMT docs, you guys are like chiropractors. How are you different? What would you say to that? Uh, 
So, <laughs> and why are you laughing, Dr. Kinchelo? I, I pretty much say yes. So, sure, we are, we do manual medicine, but we can also do everything else. We can look at the body for what it is. We're, you know, we spent three years learning about what is the differential diagnosis of low back pain and what are we, what are we ruling out? What are, what are the big extraneous things that could go with low back pain? And we can identify it with hands-on mm-hmm. and yeah. So, so it's really, we've, we have gone to medical school. We have a more integral and profound understanding of the health of this patient in front of us, which will enable us to treat them with manual therapy probably better um, than our chiropractic brothers and sisters who we very much appreciate. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I, I, I would probably also add that I I am unaware of chiropractors working with uh, the with fascial tissue. I I know there are communities of chiropractors that do work um, outside of the traditional uh, high velocity techniques. Now, okay. how to find them is beyond me. I know that they're out there and I've heard good stories from patients and fellow colleagues about them, but it's, it sounds like they are not the majority. I see. Okay. So kind of going back to the original question, why did you not decide to hang up your shingle and go to the city or town where your wife and you wanted to go to maybe in Western Washington state and start working. My main thing behind setting up a shingle myself was so one insurance is the big thing getting insurance to help start up my, well, not help start up my practice, but to get insurances to buy into the concept of my practice was going to be a very difficult task to include that there's a lot more than just uh just setting up a shingle there's also billers and uh staff members that ancillary staff that you need to help um run a medical practice now if we take insurance out of the equation there's a lot less that you have to utilize to start up a practice now you're working at a cash-based practice. And with that, there's a lot less headaches with, with insurance and billers and things like that. But my goal is to bring osteopathy to the mass. And unfortunately, the mass has insurance. Mm-hmm. So it would be a lot easier of a transition for patients to go to someone who accepts their insurance than to deal with calling their insurance and getting refunds. Plus my residency were, was mostly insurance was insurance based. And so it was already a practice that I was familiar with. 
So that's why I wanted to look for some place that was looking for someone to help with OMM and helping with their insurance and then finding a way to do that. I see. Well, what about the idea of having a cash-based practice so you don't have the complications of insurance? You print out the bill mm-hmm. give it to the patient. They, they pay you whatever it costs to see you. Give them the receipt, the bill, and they submit that to their insurance. Mm-hmm. Which is what I what we were talking about a little bit ago, but it's still one of those who can afford OMM and the you know the EM visit plus the OMM that is done in that office every single time. What's ENM? That's there that's the uh the provider visit. It's the evaluation and management. Okay. So oh, when yeah. you when you bill for an office visit, you bill for the ENM code. So that is you're seeing a physician, this is how much it costs for us to look at you to get a established uh processing of what is going on and how to manage you. Then you bill the what everyone calls the 25 modifier and then the OMT code. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is where we treated this many regions of the body. This sure. is how much OMM costs as a procedure. Sure. Yeah, because there's no guarantee when you hand that patient their receipt of how much the visit costs. There's no guarantee that insurance is going to pay even a penny of that. Exactly. And so patients that really need the help, really need the OMM to help them get from, you know, point A to point B, um, they're going to see me once for the evaluation, realize that insurance is not going to pay for it, and they're not coming back ever again. Unless they have an excessive amount of money that they don't know what to do with. Exactly. And I feel like that's why a lot of the cash-based OMT practices that I've seen, I mean, they're in the Hamptons, they're in Miami Beach, they're in San Diego, they're in Bellevue, Washington. Mm -hmm. You know, places where there are quite a lot of people with a lot of excess cash Mm -hmm. that, that want alternative treatments and not pharmaceuticals to treat their pain. Exactly. Or, or they're in practice or, and that's where the insurance-based practices, usually the insurance-based practices that you notice accept a lot, that accept a lot more of the alternative medicine, quote unquote, alternative to contemporary medicine are in areas that are a little bit more open to non-Western medicine, such as the Pacific Northwest. Oh, so you do find that insurance companies reimburse better for yes. OMT? At least from my at least from my interactions, I've noticed that uh, insurances accept more, and I've been able to refer patients out for um, for other things. So I have patients have who have been referred to me by their primary care physician, who is a naturopath. Or I've been able to refer patients out for acupuncture, which some places are unheard. It's unheard of for that. Yeah, really. Hmm. 
That's fascinating. And that's really, that's exciting to me because I also hope to end up back in the Pacific Northwest once my residency is done here at MSU. So what do you think about a practice that is, it's a hybrid. So okay. you, you accept the largest insurer in your area so mm-hmm. that you can allow the masses to come and see you and you build their insurance, but you also accept cash. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a good, a good model to work with, especially with some insurances. It might be a little bit more difficult to uh, work around or to just do a sliding, uh, sliding fee scale would be another option that's true that's that's true but then there's the hassle of trying to figure out i mean how much money the person actually makes right yeah okay that's really interesting so essentially you didn't want to deal with the administrative aspects of starting your own business and you Mm -hmm. wanted to um let the administration do that and you can go home and be with your wife and kids and kind of forget about work well you probably got some charts to do but for the most part you know kind of separate job and home life Mm -hmm. is that fair to say that is fair to say okay very cool well i really really appreciate your time we're coming up on 53 minutes here i do want to ask you one last question sure And that would be, what advice do you have for osteopathic medical students who may not be so interested in OMT? You know, they got, they just wanted to become a doctor and an osteopathic school was the school that accepted them. And they just kind of are blowing through OMT lab and, you know, not really interested in it. Do you have any advice for that student population? So for the students that are in DO school because it was the only school they could get into and um, are just going through the motions uh, just to graduate and don't 100% believe in OMM, my advice to you would be understand when and when not to send OMM to one of your fellow classmates who absolutely loves OMM. That would be my biggest advice. Understand you're, you're there to learn OMM. You're there to get the hands-on manipulation. Yes, some of you will take it and grow from it and flourish into one of the magic wizards of OMM. But <laughs> like yourself like myself, but (laughs) those that aren't understand that being hands-on with your patient, you're going to hear a lot. I I hear a lot more than others. It was great to have a physician that actually put their hands on the spot that hurts. That's a patient's. All they want is to know that they were heard, that they were cared for and that, that you're listening to them. So in that aspect, one, listen to your patients. Two, put your hands on the patient. Feel where it hurts. And then three, know when to refer to, an, to OMM. 
if you're not comfortable doing the, the techniques. And that yeah. would be my advice. I think that's so valuable, you know, because I'm not sure what the statistics are, but there are very few OMT residency programs in the country. And so, you know, we're a limited number of, of physicians in this field. But there are so many osteopathic medical schools, as we talked about earlier, that are you know, popping up all around the country. And so there are many, many new physicians who are being trained in this field, you know, four, five, six, eight hours a week. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I agree that it's so important to, to try to understand when to refer to an OMT physician uh, or an OMM physician for treatment. Um, It's really, it's fascinating at the clinic here at Michigan State University. It's a referral-based clinic, and you see these patients who have been to PT, they've done acupuncture, they've seen ortho, they've been to neurology, they've been to PM&R, and then they send them to us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yeah, it's, we, we can do a lot of good to these patients. And I absolutely agree. There is something really powerful to a person who has dedicated their career to manual therapy and just laying your, or putting your hands on that, that area of pain in a, a therapeutic, um, a therapeutic manner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very, very powerful. And sometimes we underestimate how powerful that is. So yeah, well, thanks again, Dr. Kinchillo, for your time, your generous time here going on an hour and sharing your story about how you fell in love with OMM and, and why you chose the private practice. And I, I wish you all the best in your this initial year out of residency, you know, kind of starting out your spreading your wings out, mm-hmm. in, out in the real world there in medicine. So, yeah, all the best to you and. Um, yeah, thanks for letting people as well contact you via email. Thank you very much. And I will, I will be glad to answer as much as I can. Okay. And hopefully we can have you on again and talk about a different OMT topic. So. Sure. We have plenty of other topics that I would be more than happy to talk about. Okay. Thanks again. You have a great evening. You too. There you have it, Dr. Kinchelow's explanation of why he chose OMT as his career and why he chose to work for a private practice in Eugene, Oregon. Hopefully there is some beneficial information for you once you graduate residency and are trying to figure out, should I start my own practice? Should I work for a private practice or should I work for a large hospital system? Anyway, we'll see you all in the next episode.